Hello, my name is Larry Hiles. I'm the preaching minister at the Milford Church of Christ. Thank you for taking the time to watch or listen to this message. Please feel free to share it with friends. Also, if it's impacted your life in any way, reach out to us and let us know how. If you live in the Centerburg or Mount Vernon area, we'd love to have you be our guest. We're located at 3648 Johnstown Road in Centerburg, Ohio. We look forward to the opportunity of meeting you. If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to open up to a different section uh, this morning to begin with. I'm going to ask you to open up to Ezekiel chapter uh, 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. So we are going to jump back into Exodus, but we are going to start here with a, a few verses out of Ezekiel 37. We'll look at verses 1 through 14 here in a few moments. So have you ever found yourself in what appears to be an impossible situation, right? And that impossible situation can be different things for many reasons, right? Uh, For me, going through school, uh, one of those impossible situations was passing a math class. Uh, So just trying to pass any math class was impossible. Or or how about maybe that impossible situation is overcoming a deep-seated sin struggle that you have in your soul. Uh, These aren't things that we talk about often in the church, and I I wonder at times if we don't need to. I wonder if we don't need to be more open about our sin struggles and and what those realities are, the fears, and, and just get real. If you don't have somebody in your life that you can do that with, it's really key and important to find that person to be able to open up about those things. So uh, the only thing you can see when you're in that impossible struggle or whatever it is, that obstacle, is failure, right? Uh, and so uh, taking that math exam, realizing, like, man, I'm just dumb. No matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I study. I remember in college that uh, I took uh, college algebra, and I went to the study table every day. Every day I went to the study table, and I just really resigned to the fact that when it comes to math and algebra, I'm just dumb. I couldn't get it. Right? And that's what I thought through. Uh, and then you think about a deep-seated sin, sin struggle. I've tried, I've tried, and I've tried, and no matter what, uh, I just can't overcome it. And, and you're left feeling like there is no hope, there is no way out, and, and death seems to be the only way of escape, especially when it comes to math. So, <laughs> so uh, when you look at our world, it seems as though we're in that no-hope situation right now, right? And, and it seems that way. It seemed that way for a while. Uh, Just the world is spiraling out of control. And then I think about the nation of Israel. Uh, Not today, but the nation of Israel during the time frame of Ezekiel. So for them, they were in that position of no hope. God had blessed them, but they had abandoned God, and they were about to endure his wrath. And the prophet Ezekiel had hopes to become a priest uh, like his father. Uh, But not only were his hopes crushed, but the hopes of the nation were crushed right along with his (laughs) because of the Babylonians. They were going to come in and take them captive. Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed, but there would be hope in the midst of that destruction. And in chapter 36, the prophet declared that God would put his spirit within his people and that he would do so for his namesake. And that's one of the things we forget often as well. God does things for his namesake, and we get to be the beneficiaries of those things through our faith in him. Uh, And so God would cleanse them from their sin and restore their land. And that's where we get to chapter 37, beginning at verse 1. The hand of Yahweh was upon me, and he brought me out by the spirit of Yahweh and caused me to rest in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them all around, and behold... There were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Yahweh, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. 
Thus says uh, Lord Yahweh to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put my sinews on you, make flesh come upon you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you that you may come alive. And you will know that I am Yahweh. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as, uh, as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a rumbling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh came upon them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to, to the breath, thus says the Lord Yahweh, come from uh, the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these who were killed, that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great military force. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh when I've opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, that I, Yahweh, have spoken and done it, declares Yahweh. I've always found that very interesting. To start off with the question, right? Can you imagine being the prophet Ezekiel and being brought into this vision? And, and make no mistake, I believe this, this is just a vision that he's given. And he, he has this valley of dry bones. And, and Yahweh, God, asks him, hey, hey, prophet, can these bones live? What a great answer Ezekiel gave there, right? He said, oh, oh God, you know. You, why, why? I can just picture the prophet at that point. Why, why are you asking me? God, God, you know if these bones can live or not. And imagine this aspect of what's taking place here. This nation would be crushed. Uh, Babylon would come in and destroy them. There would be a remnant saved so that God could fulfill his promise. And, and the prophet is given this vision before this takes place and, and the death and destruction of their disobedience fully in front of him. And God says, can they live? And he says, you know. And did you notice what he said to him after that? Prophesy. Preach. Preach my word to these bones. And the prophet did, and these bones came to life, right? And we're going to pick back up at the end of the message uh, with that thought. So, so, but with your Bibles, now flip them over to Ephesians chapter 5, and, and we'll pick back up there where we have been for a few weeks. Let me pray for us. Father, may your spirit guide us through your word. May we walk out of here knowing what, you, what your will is for us, for this time for this church. And Lord, give us the courage to walk through it. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul carries out a very predictable pattern in writing his letters. There's a greeting, then there's a theological uh, exposition where he just starts to give theology, and then he gives the, 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 the practical implications for that theology. And the, and the theology, you know, as we've studied, is we're chosen, we're adopted, we're sealed in Christ, that although we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God has made us alive because of his great love and his rich mercy that he has for us. 
uh, through Christ. He's brought two groups of people together. Remember, we not only have peace with God through Christ, but we have peace with one another through Christ. And, and since God has done this, we know he's able to do far more than we can ever ask or imagine. And the implications of those truths, they started in, in chapter 4. Paul declared that we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received in Jesus Christ. And, and this means we're to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in the body of Christ. Yeah. We're to fight for the unity of the church. This means that we'll no longer walk in the ways that we used to walk, but we'll seek to build one another up. And last week, we began to dig into chapter 5, in which Paul, continuing his discussions on ways in which a follower of Christ should walk, yeah, we, we, we dug into the very first aspect of walking, and today we're going to finish. And, and last week, we learned that we're to walk in love. And, and we learned that walking in love means that we're going to live a selfless life, a, a sacrificial life, and a sincere life. And so this morning, let's, let's look at walking in light and walking in wisdom. So walk in light. Look at verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10 in Ephesians 5. He says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of that light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Did you notice what Paul declared there? He said, you were formerly darkness, right? You were formerly darkness. Uh, you didn't walk in darkness, you were darkness. And this is what happens when sin overtakes someone. When we're in that position of being not at peace with God, but at war with God, we are actually at a place where darkness, is, is, it covers us. He says, but now, you're in the, now you are the light of the Lord. And so from that, we have to understand one reality of a follower of Christ. And here's that reality. You walk what you are. You walk what you are. Right? And the logical question for us as believers is, is how do we walk as children of the light? And, and, and this text is so practical. It's almost as, a, as I was looking at it to prepare a sermon, like I just, we'll just read the text and, and pray and go home because it's that practical of steps that he gives us. And the first step is, is pretty clear. We're to exalt God and forsake idols. Exalt God and forsake idols. Look at verses three through six. But sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, nor filthiness and foolish talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Look at verse 5. For this you know with certainty that no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, the, these verses are, are, are not very easy verses to read, let alone begin to try to preach in today's culture and society. I mean, truth is, is that there are many that want to ignore these verses. And truth is, is when you begin to dig through some commentaries, they gloss over some of these things. And, and truth is, there are many Christians that really want to change the meanings of these verses. It's not very fun to talk about the issues that, that are brought up in this passage of Scripture. But here's the clear reality. When you're walking in love, the sins that are mentioned here are things that we as followers of Christ are, are not only supposed to forsake, but actually bring to light in the world, which is a reality that we've given up in the body of Christ in large part. So, so let's take a deep breath and, and we're going to tackle these, the, these three verses together and we're going to uh, start with this question, right? Where is sin born? Where is sin born? Uh, it's born in the heart of every single one of us. Every single one of us. 
The Bible is clear. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and and enticed by his own lust. And, And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. Paul mentions three specific areas of sin in this text that we're going to go over. Sexual immorality, impurity, and greed or covetousness, right? And so, but the bottom line of all of these is that when we think about them, uh, the reality of life is, is that we don't really have a sin problem as much as we have a worship problem. And once we begin to realize that we have a worship problem that leads to a sin problem, it helps us to understand sin in a different light, right? Because the reality is, is we don't have a drug problem. We have a functional God problem. And we convince ourselves that the drug is the only thing that can bring comfort and only to give in and allow Satan to remind us that after we seek that drug or that drink to bring us comfort, that Satan reminds us, look, there is no hope or comfort for you because you're addicted, you're a sinner. That's a worship problem. In reality, we really, really don't have a sex problem. What we have is a worship problem. We have a problem of worshiping pleasure. And we live in a society that tells us all things go. Everything is okay. Just make sure you do you and don't hurt anyone along the way. And that's good in God's eyes, right? Well, no, we have a, a worship problem. Pleasure has become a God that we seek to, to, to uh, honor. And we honor that God whatever way is fitting. We don't have a greed problem. We have a functional God problem. The only way to satisfy is to acquire more and more stuff. And and once we have enough stuff, we'll be good, right? Well, no. Look at the richest people in the world today. They're still chasing after more and more and more. So so this is a problem of idolatry. And as Paul mentions these three sins here, let's begin to kind of dig through them as... So first one, sexual immorality. Whenever Paul mentions sins that we must turn away from, sexual immorality is always at the top of the list. Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as, uh, as dead to, to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Galatians 5.19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. And the word that Paul uses here after sexual, the immorality part, that word is porne. And when you put that together with the Greek word for right, graphe, you have the word pornography. And it gives the, begins to give you a picture of a reality of this sin. So, so let me ask you a question when it comes to the idea of sexual immorality. It's almost like the Supreme Court Justice, Do you, or not that it was the Supreme Court Justice, is, is he the one that said, I don't know how to define pornography, but I know it when I see it, right? When they were trying to define that a few years ago. Sexual immorality is kind of in that, right? And when we think about sexual immorality, can you find a time in this book, as you read through this book, that God ever excuses sexual immorality? He doesn't. I mean, think about the story of David and Bathsheba. Does he excuse their sin? No. No. Does he excuse uh, Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you remember that? I still remember the first time reading through that. I don't know if Roy and Melinda remember this, but uh, sitting in my bed, we were living with them, reading through Genesis 18 and 19, and I came out like, I thought this was a holy book. 
There are, there are men wanting to have sex with angels. I mean, that just does God ever excuse sexual immorality? And the answer is no. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that the Bible does not declare that God never forgives sexual immorality because he does. He forgives all sin in Jesus Christ. But he never excuses sexual immorality. But we live in a culture today that not only excuses sexual immorality, but, but does everything that it can to say that everything's okay. Everything is okay. Scripture is completely consistent with this sin. And whenever we come across sexual immorality, it's spoken of as homosexuality, fornication, adultery, and bestiality. These are not very comfortable things to talk about. I don't know if you can see my face right now, but I have so much heat coming from my head. Just, just like, man, I'm really talking about this in front of people. And that's what culture has done to us, right? You can't talk about these things, let alone point them out. And what about you, preacher? What are your sins? Well, you know, I'll get to that in a minute. The reality of all of our sin. But that doesn't excuse our society that wants to continue to ignore these things. In our world today, the only agenda that's being force-fed down us from every angle is that everything is okay. Everything. Of that list I just mentioned, everything. As long as nobody's being hurt. But what does the Bible say? If there is a man who lies with a male as one is to lie with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Typical preacher, right? Bet that preacher listens to Glenn Beck. I bet all he ever does is listen to conservative news, talk radio. Really, it's sports radio that I listen to the most. So, but that's what the world does to us. You're doing just what everyone else does. You're taking an Old Testament passage of Scripture and using it to support and defend your bigoted beliefs when we're a New Testament group of people, right? And, and why are you just picking that? Well, I'm not. Society has chosen that one for us. Society is the one that's chosen to force feed that at every aspect. When I was going through Bible college, my, I'm embarrassed to admit this, and I think I've told this story a couple of times in different settings, but my very first ministry track class what was one on hermeneutics, how to, how to study scripture. And there was actually a woman professor teaching that class. And, and uh, so if you remember me early on, I was so, so dogmatic in all my beliefs with everything. And so I actually sent an email to this woman professor and I said something like this. I'm embarrassed to admit this right now. I said, well, I view this as an extension of the church and, and women are supposed to remain silent in the church and you don't need a position of authority over me as a man. So I don't think you should be teaching this class. So, what a jerk, right? You know, so um, her response, do me a favor and do the work, right? And so I did the work, and I got to the end of the class, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to write a paper on women in ministry and see what the Bible has to say about this whole subject and, and what that means. And, and you know what I learned about that through that process is that the Bible is not always 100% clear on the role of women in the church, it says different things in different places, and, and, and something, I, I think some might even be getting a little bit uncomfortable with what I'm about to say, like, where is he going with this? Right, but, but here's what I learned with this. Before I go any further, I believe in the complementarian view of, of men and women. God has designed us differently, and, and in the church, God has designed the fact that the church is to be led by elders who are men, uh, and, and, the, and from that aspect, there are roles that men and women can carry out so long as elders are the men and leaders of the church. 
uh, First Timothy chapter 3 is a clear spot for that. But what I did learn along that way is some other things. I saw women in positions of leadership in the church, or in, in not only the church, but in the Old Testament, like Deborah in the book of Judges leading the nation, like uh, the daughters of Philip prophesying in the book of Acts. He said he, had, said he had four daughters who prophesied. And I remember one person trying to explain that away, saying, oh, they're just singing in the church. No, that's what that was. Like, okay, all right. Third, you have Priscilla and Aquila leading in the church. They're leading Bible studies with other church leaders. And, and Priscilla's mentioned first, who's the wife, uh, and which usually in the Bible that means primacy or, or position of leadership in that relationship. And then you have the mentioning of deaconesses in Romans chapter 16. And this doesn't even begin to talk about the idea of actually doing a word study in 1 Timothy chapter 3 when it talks about elders and deacons and deacons' wives. Right, that's what our text does with that today, deacons, wives. But if you go back into the Greek, it says in the women, the women, meaning the women who are having positions as a deaconess. Right, that's what that word study could do with that. So here's why I do all of that, right? Because then I had to find another issue in the Bible to try to uh, put that against. And, and I went to homosexuality when it comes to that. And I learned this reality that the Bible always says the same thing about homosexuality. And it didn't about women and their different roles in, the, in leadership among the nation of Israel and in the church. But when it came to homosexuality, the Bible was clear every single time. Every single time. Right? And so, what does the Bible say? Um, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions for their females exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the males abandon the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another, males with males, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their heir. First Timothy, for sexual and moral persons, homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. He goes on to talk about what that does. In Jude chapter 1, verse 7, there's only one chapter. So verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as the, these in gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh are exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So here's the reason I bring this up. I don't bring this up to give us as Christians this platform to look at the wicked and perverse world and say, look how much better we are than everyone else because the fact of the matter is is that we all have sin, right? You know, we all have something that, that's there that we have to constantly go to the throne of grace for uh, you know, and, and just continue to confess these things before the Lord. I mean, the Bible says this for a reason. If we're faithful to confess our sins, an ongoing thing, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. You know, but the reality is, is when we look at life and we look at where we're at, you know, these are the sins that Paul chose to mention here. And sexual morality is one. In, in our world, is really caught up, and I, I'm sad to say that there are many that have become trapped by the message of this world that says this is okay. And so not only is there that in sexual immorality, but there's also adultery. There's also adultery, and you know what adultery is, right? It's uh, two people, one or both of them married, having a sexual relationship with one another outside of marriage. The Bible's clear about that. Uh, fornication, that's another one. 
you know, what's fornication? It's sex outside of marriage. And then the argument that people will make sometimes, it says this as well. The Bible's not clear on that. It never says anything negative about that, but it does have a lot of things to say positively about sex inside of marriage. And so we can understand that God's word becomes clear. Genesis chapter 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and, and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Hebrews chapter 13, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for the sexually immoral and adulterers God will judge. So how can we avoid these traps of sexual immorality? And I think one of the ways is that we all have to, one, even if none of those sins are sins that any of us have ever struggled with, we have to take sin seriously in our lives. I mean, once it pops up, we've got to do everything we do to get rid of it in our lives, right? And one of the things we can do is we can uh, stop allowing people to redefine and rename sin, right? And you know how that takes place, right? I mean, Gentleman's Club. Have you ever thought about that? One day I was riding by one of those signs out there, and I read Gentleman's Club, and I thought how ironic because there's nothing gentleman about anything that takes place in there. But that's what sin does. It takes something and redefines it. For mature audiences only, the next time you see that in watching a movie, that's a key of saying, listen, we're going to shove sexual sin down your throat. We're going to just put it right in your life. Turn it off and get rid of it. Gender identification. Friends, I don't know what it's like to struggle with that. I'm going to be straight up and understand, just like, I don't know. And I do know that there are times that we just come across as jerkish when it comes to this. I heard somebody say, yeah, there is gender identification. It's when you were born, the doctor held you up and said it's a boy or a girl. I don't understand those struggles. But as followers of Christ, we've got to make sure that we stop allowing people to redefine things. You can't help who you love. If it feels good, it must be good. Changing the label of a package doesn't change its contents. As a matter of fact, it only makes it more dangerous. Right? So there's that one. Then there's impurity. It seems to me that sexual immorality would cover the idea of the impurity aspect. And this is where this one begins to kind of dig in, right? It digs in on us as Christians because that sexual immorality one, because there are times as Christians we can say, well, yep, I don't struggle with that. Nope, I haven't done that for a long time, not since I became a Christian. <coughs> but when it comes to this idea of impurity, whoo, and that's one that can get in and pry around, begin to poke at our souls and point a few things out to us What does Paul mean by impurity? He means general filth and and living in a manner that's unholy. And a strong argument can be made in context that what he's actually talking about is our conduct and speech. Look again at verse 4. Nor filthiness and foolish talk or coarse joking, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. How many times do we allow ourselves to laugh at the world's filth? How many times do we allow ourselves to get pulled into it? I mean, is it any wonder that Paul would say in another letter, whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is trustworthy, think on these things? Because when we allow these impure things to get into our hearts and minds, it begins to pull us, slowly pull us away from what the Lord would have for us in our lives as followers of Christ. 
Then he goes to the next one, right? And this is the one that I think as followers of Christ in the United States of America, maybe, maybe, just, maybe I'll just speak for myself. This is, this is the one that I think I could be the most guilty of the most times. Covetousness. Greed. Right? It's the root cause for coveting. Have you ever noticed how much we spend so much of our time chasing after stuff? I can't tell you how many times I've told April over the last few months, I need new golf clubs. You know what she said to me? It won't make you any better. (laughs) She's right, and I don't like her for it. Yeah. So we have the right car, the right house, the right job, the right clothes. And, and when, when is it ever enough? To very rarely do you ever hear anybody say, gosh, I have so much stuff. I need to get rid of it. Or if they do say it, it's kind of in jest and they never really do anything about it. We, we mask it by being prepared for tomorrow. And, and I don't want to come across the wrong way. I mean, so, I, you know, but is being prepared for tomorrow, is it really the goal or is, or is it kind of storing up? Storing up more and more. Now, there are people who store up more and more and care and help for people and do things the right way. And that's what God intends for us to do in, those, in our years where we can live off of what we've done. But, but if it's just about us, man, that's scary. What did Jesus say? He said, do not worry then saying what we will eat, what will we eat, what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing. For all these things Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. How can we know if we're struggling with greed? And, and here's a couple of questions. Are you willing to help those in need with what you have? Right? Uh, to help those in need with what you have. When you come run across their brother or sister who's in need, are, are, are you going to help them? Or are you just going to say, go and be uh, warm and well-fed? Or are you willing to tithe in the church? That's another way. That's another one of those aspects that kind of sometimes gets in and begins to dig around. And, and, um, and friends, this is one of the things I always love to say when it comes to tithing. And it's a lesson that I had to learn. It took me years to learn as a follower of Christ, you know, this idea of giving. And, and somebody says, do, do you tithe it at your gross or your net? And my question is, are you doing either? Start one place and see what the Lord does with that. And because God's word is clear in and this, and, and if you can't tithe at the church you're worshiping at, find a place that you can because God's kingdom is more important than just one place. Right? And that, that's how you know if coveting or greed is an issue in, in your life. Jesus said these words, Do not fear, little flock, for your Father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give it as charity. Make yourselves money belts, which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief uh, uh, comes near nor moth destroys for you where your treasure is you know the rest there your heart will be also I mean this section of scripture is difficult to talk about right as a matter of fact I talked myself through this passage of scripture a couple of times this week and I thought well I kind of already preached this a couple of weeks ago I'm just going to move on to marriage and the relationship there and, and it'll be okay and then I realized man if you do that with this when do you stop when do you stop not talking about the things that are, uh, when do you stop talking about the things that are difficult? Because the moment you stop talking about the things that are difficult, you allow more sin to creep in. 
And I think there are times that we need to let God's word be a mirror into our souls. Uh, and so, and this scripture is not designed, or preaching this is not designed to give us something to rally behind, right? And what it is designed is to give us a warning. And friends, I think from time to time, we need warnings as followers of Christ. We need those warnings to wake us up. Right? And we need those warnings about where our own souls can kind of creep into and the people around us that we love and care about where their souls are creeping into and the world when we think about it out there, what it's creeping into. And we need the reminders from God's word from time to time that says, oh, we'll read it here in a few moments, but to wake up, to wake up. Because here's, here's what verses five and six say again. If you're a Bible underliner, maybe maybe... Five is one to kind of pray through. For know this with certainty, that no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so Paul says to walk in the light. Don't walk in the darkness that you were. Walk in the light. And walk as a child of light, verses 7 through 10. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for uh, you were formerly darkness, but now you uh, are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of that light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Uh, try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And so how do we continue to, to display the light that we are? I mean, once again, this passage kind of walks it down for us. Uh, display light not, by not joining those in darkness. We display light by not joining those in darkness. And man, this is hard. And I think in the body of Christ, we're going to be faced with more and more opportunities for us to stand in our faith and against the flow of the world. I mean, what are we going to do? What are we going to do, friends? What are we going to do when the job says that you're going to have to support the pride parade that the company has afloat in? What are we going to do when the job says you've got to teach this curriculum or else lose your job? What are we going to do when the government comes in and says, listen, you either have that wedding in your church or we're going to take away your tax-exempt status, maybe even put your preacher in jail. What are we going to do when a family member says you either support this or you're out of my life? These things are, they're here. They're already here in our world. Now, now this goes back to last week's lesson. When they do show up, we need to walk in love. We don't need to be jerks for Jesus when these come about, but we still have to understand that we we can't join those in darkness. And this is one of the ways that we display light. We also display light by living out our Christian identity. You were once darkness, now you are light. And there's no text of scripture that speaks of conversion any clearer than this. Any clearer than this. We display light by doing all that is good, right, and true. Paul wrote these words to the church in Galatia. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. If it's right, do it. If it's wrong, don't do it. Right? Just, I mean, if you've not seen it, and just go back, and it always reminds me when I think of something like this, of Bob Newhart's Saturday Night Live skit, Stop It. Just go watch it. I mean, it's a perfect picture of something like this. 
Very rarely do we need anybody to define the difference. We display light by pleasing the Lord. What would happen in our lives if we were to live merely to please God, right? That, that's the reality. Of it. If we're picturing ourselves kind of like that five-year-old little kid. You remember yourself when you were five years old, right? When you were five years old and you still looked up to your parents and you wanted to please them and everything you did for your parents, you wanted them to be happy with you. It just makes me think of CJ when he was playing basketball at that age. He would literally bounce the ball down the court and he'd start running with the ball and then he would see us and he'd, he'd stop looking at the ball and start looking at us, but his hand would keep moving. Right? The ball would be back there. Yeah, so what would happen if we thought about our lives that way in living for the Lord, right? Lord, Lord I, I just want to please you today. Lord, I want to please you by the way I respond to this situation. Lord, I want to please you by the way I treat my neighbor. Lord, Lord I want to please you by the way I stand for truth and love people around me in doing so. <clears throat> Look at verses 11 through 14. <clears throat> and do not participate in the evil works of darkness, but instead expose them. <clears throat> We've become pretty good at exposing without loving. We've become pretty good at exposing while judging and condemning. The goal of exposing is, is not to judge and condemn, but to bring glory and honor to God. Look at verse 12. For, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, but all things become visible when they are exposed by light. For everything becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And that makes me think of those words from Ezekiel, right? How can this happen? How can this take place? It can through the Lord and through his spirit. And when we as a body of believers begin to believe in the truth and the power of the gospel, that we can actually walk in light. And as we walk in the light, we're not jerks for Jesus, but we become instruments for Jesus uh, to begin to proclaim truth for people who need it. Jesus has called us to be salt and light. As a body of believers, we need to wake up and rise up from our sleep. We need to make sure that we're not continuing to walk in these things. Because remember, here's the thing we got to remember the most here. And this is the thing I think we forget. We read a passage of scripture like this, and we think that Paul's talking to the world. Just go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1 and remind yourself of who Paul is writing to and talking to here. He's talking to the church in Ephesus. Right? <clears throat> Within us, we need to do everything that we can do to walk in the light, to wake up from our slumber and realize that there are things taking place in the world, that God has placed us here for a reason and to get involved. And that, that leads to this next part, the next walk in. We're to walk in wisdom, verses 15 through 21. <clears throat> Therefore, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. On account of this, do not be foolish, but understand what the, Lord, what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is uh, dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I, I once did an entire series of sermons off these three verses with asking the question, what's the wise thing to do? Uh, and so in... And so here's an idea for us this morning to kind of 
bring this together. How do we know if we're walking in wisdom? How do we know if we're walking in wisdom? And there's a couple of questions that I think we can ask. And, and the first one is this, are, are we making the most of our time? Are we making the most of our time? John Piper, uh, I once heard him say in a sermon, uh, I don't endorse everything John Piper believes or says, but I, I think he's a good preacher and I like to listen to him. Uh, I don't agree with everything. But I once heard him say in a sermon this, he said, Facebook and Twitter are going to remove all excuses when you stand before God and saying you didn't have enough time to pray and read your Bible. Right, man, whew, that was, that's truth right there, right? <clears throat> are we preparing for the battle? Uh, I talked about that a little bit ago. I mean, the battles are coming, friends. They're coming. And much like we prep for physical things, are we preparing for spiritual battles? Are we putting God's word deep into our hearts? Are we praying? Are we allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us in times of peace and comfort so when war comes into our souls that we can trust him through that? All of our time in front of a television or looking at our screens isn't preparing us for decisions that we're going to have to face in our lifetimes completely. What it's doing is it's just wasting time. Man, and I'm, I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of that at times. So are we making the most of our time? And that next question, do we understand what the Lord's will is? Do we understand what his will is? Friends, if someone were to come up to you today and say, what's the Lord's will for your life? How do you answer that? What comes out of your mouth at that point? Right? His will is for us to become like Christ. God's using everything in our experience to form us into the image of his son. And his will is for us to walk in love and to walk in light and to walk in his wisdom. Can we look at what we're doing and say, through this action, I'm becoming more and more like Christ. I love to imagine Paul dictating the words to a servant, writing this down. And as he's telling him to understand what the Lord's will is, he, he gives a few examples, right? He's thinking, okay, let me give some, some examples. Don't get drunk. Spend time in worship. Always be thankful. Submit to one another. And, and to walk in wisdom is to walk with Christ. And, and we know what the Proverbs writer says, right? The beginning of all wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. So if we'll just start there and work our way back. It's one of the things I love to do with a passage of Scripture. Let's start at the end and work our way back through it. If we just walk in the fear of the Lord, doesn't it begin to become a little bit easier to walk in light? Right? Because when we're healthy, have a healthy fear of the Lord and respect for Him, we're not going to walk in those sins that so easy, easily entangled us before. We're going to confess our sins to Christ and to one another. We're actually going to be instruments where we shine the light on Jesus Christ and the lives of people around us, not from a judgmental or, or, or con condemning way, but in a way that shows that we love them. Like walk in love. We're going to walk in love. People are actually going to want to be around us as followers of Christ, even when they don't agree with everything we believe or say. Right? So are we walking in the love of God and the love of others? Are we walking in the light of God and everything that means about those things of idolatry that we're supposed to ignore? And are we walking in, in wisdom? So when making the most of every opportunity, we're walking in the light. When we're forsaking sins that so easily entangle us, we're walking in love. 
When we're in a position to stand and speak for God, we do so in love. Then we're to, uh, in that position, we allow God to use us. And perhaps then, perhaps when we as a body of believers, perhaps when we hear those words at the, in, chapter, in this chapter where he says, Arise, O sleeper, and wake up. Perhaps then we can become like those dry bones in Ezekiel chapter 37. And perhaps at that moment that we as a body of Christ here at Milford will begin to see things take place in this body of believers that haven't taken place in years. And I believe that these things can happen. And I think it's time for us. I think it's time for us to arise, to wake up, to allow God's word to open up our hearts and minds to a way that we'll see him move in a great, opportunity, in a great way. To arise from this slumber and let the love of Christ shine upon us and through us. See, the goal of this message was not to bring about guilt, but to give us an opportunity to look in the mirror, actually, those last two messages. And here's the question. Here's the question I think that we need to ask when we look in the mirror is, how's my walk? How's my walk? Where am I at in this moment? What does God need to do in me? So, how's your walk?